Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. Well, good evening, everyone. Seven o'clock. As I walked in tonight, somebody uh, jokingly said, Wednesday night services are kind of like end times. The invitation is wide, but narrow is the path. Every time you come, it gets smaller and smaller. Um, Hey, in in preparation, we're going to try to finish up what we started the last time. And so there's actually two very full sets of notes. The one from the very first Wednesday night that we did, uh, talking about the war in Israel. And then there's a very full set of notes we started last time we were here. And we're going to try to finish those tonight. However, I'm mentioning that. Because there's one more uh, appendix that if you wanted to grab that, we're going to go over this tonight. Um, And again, I think I said it the first time, for those of you that enjoy notes, you're welcome. For those of you that look at this and you're just overwhelmed, uh, don't let them be. Set them on the pew next to you and just listen. uh, But I I really appreciate people coming out. I want to make sure that we... Uh, that you're not disappointed. I want to make sure that I'm giving you my best and, uh, and that you have uh, plenty enough to satisfy any hunger that you have to study the Word of God and, and to understand. Tonight, we're going we're gonna to pick up uh, in the study we started last time, and we wanted to answer three questions. Uh, why do we see a rise in anti-Semitism, not only in the United States, but around the world? In case you're not paying attention to what's happening <clears throat> It's not just the protests now, but the actual attacks on, peop- on people of Jewish uh, descent uh, are on the rise here in the United States. I mean, there are people that are actually, it's like, it's like we step back into the Nazi Germany days. There's no reason, there's no rationale other than the fact that they're Jewish and they're hated and, uh, and people are, are the, the attacks uh, are on the rise literally. And you don't have to look very far in the news for them, um, but they're, I think we had over a dozen since that I, I can just easily find since the last time that we, that we met a couple of fatalities. Second, we want to understand why is it important to us as Christians? Uh, you know, we, we can see what's going on in college campuses and in some of the liberal cities and the states. And yeah, that, that's a bad thing. But why, why is that important to us in, as Christianity? And then how does it connect to the end times? <clears throat> And so I gave you in the last, in the big full set of notes, uh, six possible rationales. These are just so you can understand from a natural point of view, a political point of view. Uh, you'll see some of this stuff, you know, uh, spelled out on some of the posters and you'll hear it in the chants and you'll hear some of the interviews. Uh, th- this is why they're out there protesting. And, and, uh, and all of these, you know, have been historically documented before. They're, none of them are brand new. They're all uh, throughout the history uh, of, the, of uh, the people of Israel. You can see a lot of it reflected in the Old Testament. Um, but here we are again, you know, thousands of years later, and it's still, um, it's still very much on the rise. Well, tonight we're going we're to look at, look at it again. We're going to look primarily at Revelations chapter 12. Uh, it's not comprehensive, but, it, but it's, a, it's one of the great little snapshots in the book of Revelation that helps us to see kind of the history of how this all developed, how the people of Israel were so hated and how they were, yet they were God's chosen people and and not only how it all developed, 
but how it will come to an end. And it's all capsulized in Revelations chapter 12. So it's not comprehensive, but it's going to give us a really great view of that. Um, And we want to understand, again, from a biblical view, that we want to establish we are connected to Israel. This is important to us because, first of all, as far as God's concerned, we are in the same spiritual family. We've been spiritually grafted into Israel. I think I mentioned it last time. Uh, Israel is not a, uh, a country that was born in a blood relation. Israel was started uh, with Abram and Sarah, who were, uh, in the, who were born in the Chaldeans. They were Chaldeans, and, uh, and yet God says, I'll start with you and I'll create a whole new race. So literally, the, the nation of Israel was born of spiritual descent. The, the DNA started with one ethnicity and ended up transferring that into a spiritual nation. And, uh, and the reason that, that we can see the connection, because you and I are the same. We don't think about that, but we all have our, ethnic, uh, our origin of ethnicity. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus said we've been born a second time. And as far as God's concerned, we are bona fide children of, of the Lord, and we have a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, so we live in the world, but we're not of this world. And so we have the same spiritual heritage in the body of Christ, and that's another thing that we can connect. But one of the things that's important that I really want, hope we can highlight, we started it last week, we'll do it even more, is that I, I want you to recognize, aside from the six rationales that, that you have and the things that you're going to hear from political pundits and, and uh, people that have op-eds and doing that, the, the, the Bible gives one primary reason why, why the Jews are so hated and why that's important for Christians because we're connected to that. As the rise in anti-Semitism begins to grow, so will the, will the rise for the, in the hatred and the persecution for Christians around the world. These are historically connected all the way through the Bible and they'll be connected, uh, you will see in the, in the end times, they'll be connected here as well. But the underlying reason for all of this is this intensification of this venomous hatred of what the Bible calls is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, listen to, listen to, the, to the title, Antichrist. Everything that we understand and we believe and the Bible teaches about who Christ is and what he stands for, there's a spirit in the world that is anti all of that, including any, any person that's connected to that. And the Bible calls this the spirit of the Antichrist. And it says that it was already back in the New Testament. It was already in the world and it was working. That's what drove the persecution of Christians and the martyrdom of so many and has ever since. But it will increase in the last days here. And so all of a sudden, like we saw back during the COVID era, and all of a sudden there were all these cultural explosions where things that maybe were there on a low, low burner all of a sudden intensified and then they got out into the streets and there were riots and people were, you know, were killing each other and were the political divide and our country still very divided. All of that division was spurred by the spirit of an anti-Christ, not bringing peace, not bringing uh, connection and cohesion, but dividing people and devouring people. And so we're going to see this intensify, particularly when it comes to the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, and we'll see tonight in Revelations 12 how that will continue to grow. 
because the enemy absolutely hates human beings because they're made in the image of God, but he particularly hates two groups of human beings. One is the nation of Israel, God's originally chosen people, and the next is the Christians, God's Christ's body that are the, are the front runners in the message of the kingdom, winning people to Christ in these last days. Uh, so we're going to go to Revelations 12, and we're going we're gonna to read it like we did last week, and then I'll skip, skip a rock to get us as quickly as possible uh, to where we want to start today. But, but let me remind you about a couple things in Revelations, in case you weren't here, or in case uh, you didn't hang on to it. It should be in the forefront of your mind. This will be helpful. Whenever you open the book of Revelations, you need to understand a couple of things. First of all, uh, Revelations is mostly about the future, not exclusively, but mostly about the future. It, but it's also partially about the past. And so you, you'll, be reading, uh, you'll be reading something and it has this incredible imagery, imagery and these metaphors and you think you're reading future. But if you, if you don't stop and recognize, well, some of this could be past and it's, sometimes it's woven all together. And occasionally you get an ongoing or a current reality. Uh, and the Bible just kind of puts all those together like a tapestry. And so it's not just the symbolism and the pictures and the metaphors that you have to wrestle with. You have to keep in your mind, it's not all about the future, but most of it is. And I gave you some examples there in your notes that are right there in the first few chapters of Revelation to at least give you a snapshot of what that looks like. Here's the second thing about Revelations that will help you is Revelation basically covers four tellings of the same thing. It's kind of like the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's so many stories in there that, that are parallel to one another. And there's a few that are different, but there's so many stories that are parallel. But when you lay those stories side by side, Matthew's version, Mark's version, Luke's version, John's version, they're all slightly different, not contradictory, but each one that's writing is looking at a different picture from a different angle and they're describing it a little different. So when you put all the gospels together, you can get like a really full understanding of what happened in one of those events because you're getting it from four different angles. The book of Revelations is kind of the same. It, it really talks about the same four groupings or the same four uh, uh, conglomerations of, of events or end times things. Uh, and it just retells them over and over and over again, it, but from different angles with different emphasis and for different reasons. So it, it talks primarily about Israel and the church. And so it can be talking about one or the other, but most of the time you'll see them connected together at some point in whatever that passage is. It talks a lot about the rapture. And we're going to talk tonight about, you know, the different versions of the rapture and, and how they kind of play out. Uh, it talks about this tribulation. We're going to talk about that tonight. It's a seven-year period where all of a sudden the worst of the worst happens in the world because God is, is pouring out wrath in order to move along his plan uh, to, to, to be able to get sin and transgression out of the world and to introduce uh, the, the millennial reign of Christ. We also, it also talks about the, the Armageddon or the final battle. This is the thing that will wrap everything up, the final battle before we go into eternity. And then it talks about this thing called the millennium. That's a thousand years where Christ comes back, the second coming of Christ. He wipes out unrighteousness. He establishes uh, the earth under his government. Isaiah chapter nine says uh, the government will be on his shoulder and everybody's like, this is wonderful, man. This is peaceful. This is exactly what it's supposed to be. 
And for some reason that the Bible doesn't quite help us to understand, that'll go for a thousand years. The devil's been chained up, but after a thousand years, he gets let loose for a short time. We don't know what that means, but for a little short period of time, he's back on earth causing havoc. And it's like one more purging, one more opportunity for people to confirm that, uh, that they, are, they are siding with the Lord. By the way, not Christians that are living today, We've already been raptured. Our eternity is secure, but, but there will be people that are on the earth that are born during that 1,000-year period. And, uh, and after 1,000 years, the enemy will get loose one more time. Um, and so Israel and the church, the rapture, the tribulation, Armageddon, and millennia uh, is, is talked about in like four different tellings over and over again. But the way they're presented is when you're reading in Revelation, some of these things are are spread out over hundreds or thousands of years. Sometimes with these gaps that we don't have any, any way to measure that. Are, are we close? Are we, are we in the middle? Are we at the end? And we don't really know. We'll see one of those tonight. And so when, when you understand that, you can understand why. Uh, when you're trying to, uh, to put together an end time um, calendar, so eschatological stuff, the, 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 the unfolding of, of the end of, end of days, there's at least eight to nine different versions out there. And, and I don't know about you, but when I was first in Bible college, that just shocked me, like took all the, all the excitement. I came to Bible college to learn what is this all about and then find out, what do you mean there's like nine different versions of it? Doesn't anybody know what they're talking about here? But, but it's because we're not given the entire linear timeline in the Bible. We're given a lot of pieces and, and it's an opportunity for us to study and for us to trust the Lord. My personal uh, opinion is we're not given that because we're supposed to be living by faith. We're supposed to be living as if this Jesus could come any minute. And by the way, we'll see tonight that he actually can. There's not anything that needs to be checked off. We're, we're not looking to check boxes off to see when, Jesus, when the rapture is going to happen. That's, that, that can happen like while we're talking tonight quite literally, okay? We're looking to check boxes off to see if we can understand when does this last period start wrapping up? Because there are certain things that begin to happen and you, you get, a, you get a, a real clear picture, oh, we're there in the timeline. And so that, that's primarily why we're looking at it. But if anybody's you know, looking to try to understand what's going on because you, you, you want to know when the rapture is going to happen, <laughs> now, five minutes from now, and the Bible tells us, be ready. In fact, the, the passages are, are so shocking that most of the time as Christians, we don't like to read them. But it says that two people will be working together on a job and all of a sudden one's gone and the other's still standing there. And, and the indication is these are both God-fearing people, and, 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 but, but not, all, not all of them, not both of them were living for Christ and we're, we're, we're ready to go. And it, and it gives those kind of things, and, and these, these are real, and so we need to be paying attention. All right, let me just read through Revelations chapter 12, uh, at least the first 12 verses real quick, so we can get a uh, uh, kind of a heads up about it. Uh, maybe I'll do this first. Uh, let, me, let me just kind of give you the characters so that you can listen for them as they come out. And uh, if you were here last time, then you might remember, but if not, uh, this is a little farther down in your notes. And you're going to see these end time figures. These are the players in this scene that we're going to read. So we're going to hear about a woman, and that represents Israel, 
doesn't represent the church, doesn't represent Mary, the mother of Jesus. We talked about that last time. We're going to hear about a dragon, as we can all probably guess, that represents Satan. We're going to hear about the man-child. That one's fairly obvious. It's going to be referring to Jesus. We're going to hear about the angel Michael, and that's actually the head of the angelic host or the army of heaven. Some people say that's Jesus, a metaphor for him. It's not. That's actually an angel, and it will help us to understand why. We're going to hear a phrase from a loud voice that says, and they overcame him. And it doesn't say who it is, but it indicates that these are the Gentiles, or these are people that were not believers, not Jewish, who came to faith in the middle of this really rough period called the tribulation. We're gonna, and then we're going to see uh, the, the beast out of the sea. We won't get to that tonight. You have to read on down, uh, but you'll see the beast out of the sea that represents the Antichrist, the personification of the Antichrist. And then you're going to see the beast out of the earth that represents a couple of false prophets that will go out and prove to the world that the Antichrist is legit, that he should be believed. But those are down in verse 18 and on in chapter 13. But that's the full story that we won't get to that, uh, but I wanted you to see that. Okay, let me just read the narrative and then we're gonna jump to verse number six and get started uh, from there tonight. It says, now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in, and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. So these are two evidences that something major is happening. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems or crowns on his head. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood there before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. And they did not prevail. The dragon did not prevail nor was any place for that found in, uh, for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. Well, if you fast forward in your notes, you can find verse number six because uh, that was the verse we just read that said, uh, I'm sorry, the verse number five. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And we talked about last time that this was an actual uh, depiction of Mary birthing Jesus 
It takes into account his earthly life of 33 years, his death, his resurrection, and then the last part there when it says that he was caught up to God in his throne, that was the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And it's important you see that because when we get to verse six now, there's this long gap that we're currently living in. And inside that long gap, there's some other stuff that the Bible talks about that it would, it's helpful for you to be able to plug in there and to know, meanwhile, until we get to verse six, all of this other stuff is happening. For example, Jesus rose, but the church was birthed. And when the church was birthed, we became ambassadors of Christ. All of a sudden, Satan was trying his best to kill off the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament so the Messiah couldn't be born. He failed. Then the Messiah was born and Satan tried from the time he was born all the way until the time that he finally was crucified on the cross, Satan tried to destroy the Messiah so that, so that uh, the Messiah couldn't set uh, people, God's people free and bring about the plan of redemption and he failed. In fact, he thought he'd won when he crucified Jesus but Paul says, had he known what he was doing that the enemy would have said he would have, he would have stayed a a hundred yards away from Jesus. He would have said, no, don't touch him. Don't bruise him. Just let this thing play out because he's going to have to die. But he had no clue that killing him or facilitating his death, let me put it that way, would bring about the plan of redemption. And when that happened and Jesus uh, rose again and then ascended and the New Testament church was birthed, now the enemy has two problems. He started with one. Now he's got two problems. The nation of Israel is still in existence and they are prophesied all the way through the Old Testament that they are a really important part of how this end time unfolds and the end time will unfold and will result in Satan's demise. We'll see that in Revelations 12. And so his first and initial uh, effort to extinguish the Jewish race off the face of the earth, that picks back up again. And he's going to try to figure out how do I get the nation of Israel off the face of the earth because if, I, if there's no nation of Israel, then God's end times can't come to pass. So he's still after Israel. That's part of the reason, that that's the heart of the reason for the rise in anti-Semitism. And I listed in the notes there the numbers of times that Israel, that uh, nations have sought to extinguish Israel uh, more than any other nation. They've been sought uh, to be eradicated off the face of the earth. And uh, that's still happening. But now they also, uh, the enemy also has to contend with this new race of spiritually reborn people. And they're spreading all over the earth, speaking, uh, preaching the gospel. And now he's got two problems. And so he's chasing this. If you can understand that, that he's got to extinguish the Christians so the message of Jesus Christ will stop and so the authority that Christians have been given in Jesus Christ will stop opposing what he's trying to do. He's also got to extinguish Israel because if the country's not there, if the people aren't there, then God's plan for end times can't unfold because it all revolves around Israel. And so he's doing both of these and we'll see that intensify as the, as the end time goes on because that is the root 
of the rise of anti-Semitism. And that will be the root of the rise and the persecution of Christianity as time goes on. This is promised in the Bible. It's already happening around the world. We've been so fortunate in the United States to be, to be so distanced from it. We didn't, even, we didn't even feel it. Even when we did, it was like somebody laughed at us and we, we gave them our testimony and they walked away and that hurt my feelings and we call that persecution. And it is in a very, very mild form. But nothing compared to what it's costing and has cost other people around the world to give their life to Christ. It literally was things we read about uh, in, the, in the New Testament times. Well, hold on to that. Just before we get to verse number six then, uh, grab that addendum and let's just look at that real quick. I think if we cover that, I won't be able to cover it extensively, but if I think if we look at that real quick, that's gonna be really helpful uh, for us to understand uh, kind of going back to Revelations for a couple of reasons. We, we said, when, when you realize that verse number five said that the, that the child that was born was caught up to God and that represents the ascension of Jesus uh, and the next verse is gonna start talking about what happens as the tribulation begins. We've got this gap. We're living in this gap right now, have been for thousands of years. We don't know how much longer, but this is why we watch what's happening with Israel in particular, because it could give us a timetable like, okay, this is about ready to wrap up. By the way, that's just one signal. But Jesus in Matthew 24 and, and Paul in the First Timothy chapter, uh, First Timothy chapter three, chapter four and Second Timothy chapter three, there's a long list of identifying marks. When you see these things happen and they're accelerating and they're intensifying and it's surrounding the globe, then you know that the end of the end times are, are coming to a close. We're at the last port. If a ship was sailing, we're at the last port before there's nowhere else to go. And that's literally what the Greek language paints. And that's the signs that we're looking at now. And so in the middle of that gap where we're living right now, here's what we know from from biblical times. Somewhere in there is the potential of this thing that the Bible calls the rapture of the church. And there's four different views on the rapture. And at the end of, of your, your appendix there, I, I give you the view that I believe the most strong in, and there's a reason why I believe that. Uh, but here's four different views. Three of them are primary, and they're called pre-tribulation. It's the rapture occurs before the tribulation. That's seven years that once the clock starts, it'll be seven years to the day that God's wrath is unleashed on the earth starting with the first three and a half years and intensifying, getting much, much, much worse in the last three and a half years, so much so that the Bible says if time wasn't cut short, that nobody would survive. And so seven years is the time period, but before the seven years starts, before things get horribly worse than they are right now, uh, there is this promise in the Bible that, is, uh, that some people hold as pre-tribulation that we will all be, as Christians, we'll all be taken uh, up, up to heaven in the rapture and then the tribulation starts. There's another one that's called mid-tribulation, kind of self-explanatory, happens right in the middle of the tribulation at the three and a half year mark. And then there's another one called post-tribulation and that's that people that believe that at the end of the seven years, that that's when the rapture. So Christians go all the way through halfway if you're a mid-tribulation or go all the way through the tribulation and see the worst of the worst. And yet uh, we hold on to our faith and God raptures us at the end. Uh, There's actually a fourth, it's less popular. You don't hear it very often, but it's a fourth view. It's called pre-wrath. 
And right at the end of the end of the seven years of tribulation, I mean, this thing gets really, really bad. God pours out his final vial of wrath. And just before that final outpouring of wrath, there's, there's another view that says the Christians are going to be taken up right then. And so, so it, it's a view. I'm not, I'm not saying, not, I'm not defending any of these. I'm, I'm just saying this is what they are. But first, let, let's come back and understand the reason for the tribulation because that helps us to understand Revelations chapter 12. And to do that, we have to go and grab Daniel chapter 9 in the Old Testament and weave it into the stories. Now, I'm going to skim through the notes here. I won't, be able, won't read them all, but uh, they're comprehensive so you can read them later. But in Daniel chapter 9, he prophesies about a lengthy period that he calls 70 weeks. If you look in the Amplified Translation, it kind of expands it out, the meaning, so we don't have to figure the equations out. And it says that 70 weeks or 70 weeks of years or a total of 490 years. And so Daniel says there's going to be a 490-year period that the Lord decrees that throughout that period, he's going to, to begin to move so that by the time it's over, Israel's transgression uh, is going to be reconciled and he's going to bring them back into it to his, uh, his prophetic plan. And so this is important though, when you understand 490 years, that's not in dispute, that's pretty clear. But again, like a lot of end time prophecy, we can't assume that 490 years are like consecutive, right? So most of these years have already happened. You can validate that in the Bible. You can validate with that with history, but it happened in groups. So there was 60 something years and there was another uh, 300 and something years. And then Right now, we're living in a gap with the very last, the only part left is a seven-year period that would complete the equation for the 490 years total. And that, that's how we see we wrap that up uh, in, in Daniel. So, so Daniel's talking about 490 years, but again, it's not, it's not consecutive. It's when you add up these things that happen. And every time an event happens that had to do with Daniel's prophecy, the time clock, the end time time clock would start and then when that was over, it would stop. And then you'd go into a pause. And then when something else would happen, it would start again, and then it would stop. We're in the same kind of a situation right now. From a scholarly point of view, uh, there's a huge gap between the 69th week of seven and the, and the 70th week of years, which is the last seven years. And as, as far as, as, as scholars can tell, uh, pretty substantiated in scripture is we have everything that's happened. We're, all we're waiting for now is the clock to start again. And we go into that last seven year period and Daniel's prophecy will be complete. So, so that, that's a timeline we're looking at. And that's another reason we watch Israel because when something happens with Israel, we're like, oh, is the clock starting? Are we starting that last seven year period? What, what's happening here? And, and then, you know, a conflict will rise and then it eases up and we go, oh, okay, not yet. Not, Jesus can still come back. So we have to pay attention, but we're not heading, we're not in the tribulation yet because you know, that, this, this didn't unfold the way it was supposed to. So we're watching that. But it still doesn't answer what's the purpose of the tribulation. And if you're reading in Daniel chapter nine, you'll find in verse number 24, he capsulizes six different purposes or a collection of six purposes that God intends to accomplish culminating in that final seven years. I keep using the term, the tribulation. I want that to stick in your head, that time frame. 
And here's what they are, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring an in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. We don't have time to go through all those individually. That's a, that's a great study, pretty involved study, uh, but it's a really, really good one. But if we narrow this down, Here's what he's saying in those six things, that these final years will be the culmination of all the events on earth that sets the stage for Jesus to come down to earth for a second time. That's referred to in the Bible as his second coming. And the first time he came was he was born to Mary. The second time he comes, the Bible says he will come not as a lowly little baby, he will, not as the Lamb of God, he will come as a reigning victorious Lord. And he, he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives and he will take charge of the earth once again. And this is really going to happen. Now that's not the same thing as the rapture. Okay? The rapture talks about a time when Christians will be snatched away and called up to him. But the second coming is the time where Jesus literally comes down to the earth. And so those are two different things. Some people confuse those and they try, to, they try to talk like they're the same. They're absolutely not. And so this is saying that the last seven years, the, the whole purpose of it is to put the people of Israel, to put the, the, uh, Satan, our enemy, and, and to put the plan of God all in the same compressed time period and to bring it all to a culmination so that Jesus can come back and can reestablish his kingdom on the earth. And we can go into the millennial reign of Christ, which will end up, I'm sorry, will end up bringing us uh, into uh, eternity. Because once we get to eternity, we don't have to worry about any of this stuff. We live forever and ever in a, in a pristine, wonderful God environment. And that's what all of, uh, all of us are looking forward to. Well, if we kind of keep going with that, in the book of Daniel, again, chapter 9, all of this unfolds with the 70 of seven weeks and the 490 years. And well, Daniel talks about that right in the middle of this final seven-year period, there's a shift. When the... When the what the Bible calls the tribulation starts, things are going to get, start getting really bad on the earth as God begins to pour out his wrath because he's condensing everything. He's bringing it all to a close. But, but in the first part of that, he, the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to be celebrated as a man of peace because he's going to seem like he's got the answer to the world's problems. And for the first time in history, all of the nations of the world are going to say, yeah, we let him lead us and they're all going to come together. It'll be a one world government and the Antichrist is going to lead that. And for the first three and a half years, he's going to make this contract or this covenant with Israel and things are going to look like they're going great as far as that's concerned. Really bad stuff's happening on the earth as God pours out his wrath. But, but in, inside of the governance of the earth, things are going to look like that, that they're doing okay. But then Daniel in verse 27 of chapter nine says, right in the middle of that seven years, all of a sudden, the Antichrist is going to make a radical shift. I mean like night and day. And the covenant that he made with Israel, treating them so wonderfully and, and you know, being right there in Jerusalem is the new headquarters and all of that's going to suddenly turn. And both the Antichrist and God will focus all of their attention for those last three and a half years on the nation of Israel. Like they'll become the spotlight of the world and everything's happening there, not just from a, from a natural point of view, but from a spiritual point of view. Remember, it's all intensifying. It's all coming to a close. And so 
the enemy is going to suddenly turn against them and he's going to desecrate their temple in what Jesus called in the book of Matthew, in the book of Mark, the abomination that causes desolation. And right along with that, he is going to declare an intentional genocide on the Jewish people. He wants to wipe them out. Remember, it's not necessarily the people. It's what he knows is happening. And we're, set, we're, we're now halfway through this seven-year condensed period. He knows what God said. He knows how the timetable works. And he knows that three and a half years into this, even though he's established and the world's following him, he's looking at God's timetable and he's saying, I'm in trouble. I, I, I don't know how to fix this. And so the last three and a half years, he goes into a full-blown panic. You're going to see it in Revelations 12. And he just begins flailing and he's destroying everything, starting with Israel. Because if he can wipe Israel off the map, God can't finish his plan. But at the same time, you're going to find out that God turns his attention on Israel too. And as the, as the Antichrist tries to wipe them out, then God is, going to, uh, God, God is going to come to the rescue and preserve them. So we'll see that in the book of, uh, of Revelations. But I wanted you to see it in Daniel chapter 9. It's all right there. And it kind of helps us to unfold these things. All right. Now, let's talk about the rapture real quick. Uh, and then uh, where, does it, where does all this rapture stuff fit so that we can see? Because we're living in this in-between period. And there's a few of these views, a couple of these views that fits right there. There's one of them that doesn't fit until till we get closer, but, but there's one particularly that's right here, and there's, there's a couple that, that, uh, that kind of nuzzles right there so we can, we can see. So first of all, uh, we, there's no, there's, the, the word rapture is not actually in the scripture, but it's described here, the primary uh, passage that all of the theories of when the rapture will happen finds itself in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. You should have that on your sheet. And, and Paul goes through this narrative and he says, I don't want you ignorant concerning those that have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. These are people that died. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So he, he's telling them, God has a plan to wrap this up. And if somebody already died, that that's, doesn't mean they're going to miss the rapture. It means, no, no, God's got them. And when Jesus comes back, this whole thing will happen in the twinkling of an eye. I don't even remember what, what the math was. It was like one, one sixty-fourths of a blink or something like that. It, it, it's, it's mind-bogglingly quick, but it'll happen so fast. And not only will the dead uh, be re- rejoined with their bodies and they will rise, but those that are of us that are still alive will be caught up right behind them. And, and all of a sudden, millions, billions of people that lived throughout the history of mankind and, and many of them that are on the earth there will be caught up with the Lord. And so this is what he says is going to happen. God's absolutely going to do this. Well, it's one chapter later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, that Paul writes and says, because God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And many theologians on the, on, when it comes to the, to the study of the rapture, they connect what Paul said in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. They, they say that he stayed on the theme. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, when he says, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, he's talking about the rapture. The reason the church is pulled away is because the wrath of the tribulation is about to be released on the earth. And God, God, God didn't, God didn't appoint that or didn't designate us to have to go through that. Now, this is an actual scripture, couple of scripture references that are laced together and they form the foundation uh, of the rapture and kind of where that it's placed in here and, and we'll unfold it in a minute. But I want to tell you, it's not the only time the Bible hints at the rapture. There are types there are pictures of the rapture that are all the way through from the Old Testament to the New Testament. One of them is Noah, is just before the cataclysmic flood happened, God built an ark and those that believed in him were sealed up in the ark and, were, were not, and didn't experience all of the cataclysmic uh, um, events of, of a flood. Another one was the nation of Israel, how God delivered them from Egypt, pulled them out just before the Egyptian army was destroyed. And there, there's a whole bunch of them all the way through the Bible. And these are called types or pictures. And they all seem to be consistent to confirm what Paul's telling us here in 1 Thessalonians. Well, if, if we take that these 1 Thessalonian passages that there is a rapture, that Christ is going to take his church, and in chapter 5 that he's going to do it without the church having to suffer or be part of that, the outpouring of his wrath, then, then we bring that into the book of Revelations. And, and the thought is, it seems inconsistent with God's promises. It seems inconsistent with the pictures and the types that we see throughout the Bible for God to leave Christians on the earth during any part of the tribulation. And that's where the fundamental belief that there's a, that, that the, in the pre-tribulation that Christians will be raptured before things get really bad. It, it kind of adds another layer in Revelations chapter 3 verse 10 when it says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the world. And, and uh, scholars study this and say, well, it could technically mean one of two things. Either Christ is going to protect believers through the tribulation, in which case that's either a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, or it could mean that he's going to deliver believers out of the tribulation. That would be a pre-tribulation. And some try to squeeze a mid-tribulation in there because comparatively it doesn't get that bad in the first part of the tribulation, although it's so much worse than it is right now. And so it's still pretty bad. And, and by the way, the Greek language, the verb tenses and everything allows for both of those interpretations. But, but people that believe in a pre-tribulation will, will press on and argue, yeah, but, but the Revelations 3 says the promise is that he will keep us from the hour of trial. And so they argue that God's promise is not just going to keep us from the trial or keep us through the trial, but he's actually going to keep us from the time period that the trial is executed and people are, 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 having, to, are having to navigate that. And so that, that's a, the pre-tribs will go on and will interpret that. In other words, um, they're saying that it's inconsistent with the word of God, inconsistent with the pictures and the metaphors and the types and the shadows from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament until we get to Revelation. It's inconsistent 
to say that Christ promises he's going to deliver his church, that people that are righteous have not been appointed to wrath, that Jesus took all of that for us so that we could be justified, we could be delivered from all that, and then turn around in Revelation and say, oh yeah, but we have to go through the most intense seven years of God's wrath on on the earth that the world's ever seen. And so here's my summarizing statement, and if you disagree, uh, then uh, I still love you as a brother. I'm a patient guy. I'll wait till we get to heaven and you can find out I was right, okay? <clears throat> but, but if you disagree, all joking set aside. When, when you just look at this broadly, I, I asked a, one of my professors in Bible college because, again, I was so disappointed that there wasn't just an answer, right? And I asked him and he said, well, here, here's the position that I think you should take. First of all, you should study and you should try to determine what you feel is the right interpretation yourself. He said, but here's the position I think you should take. I, I, think, that you should, uh, I think that you should hope that it's pre-trib. You should be ready for mid-trib. And you should be praying every day that it's not post-trib. Because he said at the end of the day, uh, <laughs> but, but here's what I found in my studies. It's my personal study. I won't impose that on anybody. But I find that if, if, if and when I read the Bible and allowed the Bible to speak to me literally, when I collected all of that information and I spread it across the different, the different theories of when the rapture would happen, I felt like that the Bible both literally and consistently pointed toward a pre-tribulation rapture. And so that's what I personally believe. However, I'm living as if the rapture could come any minute and if all of a sudden something happens and we realize, whoops, it's not pre-tribulation because the tribulation just started. And so we're now in mid-trib, then I'm just gonna be ready for that and I'm gonna trust that God's gonna preserve us all the way through that, okay? This is not an extensive study, but it kind of gives you a framework and it's important because let's go back quickly then to Revelations chapter 12, see if you can find verse number six and that's going to flavor some of the things that we'll see now in Revelations chapter six, and we can highlight them, and it should, it should help you to build an equation, right? So we're in Revelations chapter six. Remember in verse number five, uh, the, the woman had the baby, and then the baby was, was taken up to God. And so we know that was the birth of Jesus that encompasses 33 years of ministry of life and then ministry on the earth. And then it also... Uh, takes into account his death, his resurrection, his ascension in heaven, the birth of the church, et cetera, et cetera. We're living in this period. So what we're about to read, none of this has happened yet. Okay, so th- this is what, when, when the clock starts again, this is what we're going to experience. So we're in between verse five and verse six, and we, we don't know how long it's gonna last, but this is where we're living right now in the time period. Verse six says, then the woman, remember who's Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Well, it's further down in your notes, but let me just tell you so you don't get hung up on the numbers. 1,260 days equals three and a half years. And so we're, we're talking about a three and a half year period that things get so bad that Israel has to, has to flee for their lives. And God has a place that's been prepared to them, for them. He's already thinking about it. In fact, in the notes, uh, this comes up, as you, if, you're, if you're researching and studying, this comes up multiple times that uh, Israel believes 
scholars believe that there's a place in the wilderness, uh, it's the rock city of Petra, south of the Dead Sea, and they believe it's reported, whether it's conspiracy or actual, that uh, Christian businessmen have been stockpiling food and evangelistic tracts and things that the, the children of Israel that will flee there, that's where they're going to find their refuge and God is going to protect them. We don't know where it's going to happen, but here's what we do know because the scripture's clear that as things intensify, that God's, God's going to protect and provide for Israel so that he can, he can move them through and not all of Israel will, will be extinguished off of the earth. He can save a remnant there because his plan's gonna go forward. In fact, when it says that they found a place prepared by God, that word prepared is the same word that's used when Jesus in John 14 said, I go to prepare a place for you. It's talking about something that was thoroughly, something that was uh, completely prepared uh, in order to accommodate somebody or to accomplish something. So this wasn't a haphazard. We threw a few survival things, you know, a, a couple of MREs, and, you know, in, in there just in case. This is something that's been meticulously thought through so that there can be a refuge. And, and uh, so we're believing that that's what God's going to do. And so <clears throat> this is what happens. Uh, Having established a covenant with Israel, the dragon or the devil here will go for three and a half years and everything seems like it's going to be great. And all of a sudden, without notice, well, people that are watching the clock will know, but all of a sudden he will flip and go to the other extreme. And he will begin to persecute them, to defile the temple and their religion, and they'll have to flee for their survival. But even though the devil's putting his focus on them, God puts his focus on Israel too. And God says, no, you're not gonna wipe out my, my people because I still have a plan for them. Verse number seven says, at the same time that all of this happens. So when this is going on on the earth, it's because of a spiritual war that's happening in heaven. It says a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So right in the middle of the tribulation, this is what, uh, what causes or what, uh, what is part of the Antichrist turning against, uh, against the nation of Israel is that uh, God turns the tide against, against Satan too. First, he, he initiates it in heaven with, with this uh, angelic warfare, but then on earth and a, an actual battle takes place. I've already told you that Michael and his angels here, <clears throat> even though some try to connect that to Jesus, it's not... Uh, Michael's actually the head of the angelic army and the leader uh, of, of that battle at that point. And he fights with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. Again, this is a really dramatic battle scene. Here's what's interesting. Uh, the Bible says that, that Jesus came and he completely defeated and disarmed the enemy where we're concerned as Christians. So we don't do that hand-to-hand -hand combat stuff. We don't do that, you know, actual battle stuff. Our battle with, with, with Satan is a spiritual one, and it's really fought on the battlegrounds of truth and deception. Satan's already defeated. It's just that most Christians don't know that. And so whenever we're in a wrestling match with him, it's not actually trying to defeat him. He's already defeated. It's us recognizing that, that Christ has already secured the victory, and the truth of God's word is enough to, to initiate our authority and allow the power of God to go into action. 
And so our battle with him is a spiritual one. It's based on truth and deception and then on fear versus faith, whether we're gonna give in to fear or we're gonna stay and put our confidence in God. And I gave you some scripture references that will help you with that. However, when, when it comes to angelic conflicts, we're not told specifically like, when this battle's fought or why this battle's fought, but we are taught throughout the Bible that there are angelic battles that happen. And, and the Bible leaves plenty of room that, uh, that these angelic conflicts are actual material battles. So it's not just kind of, you know, uh, Jedi mindset stuff. These are actual battles that are taking place. We don't really understand them. We, we can glean from some of the nuances of some of the scriptures, but, but we, we, we really don't even know in our wildest imagination. We know though this is an actual battle that will take place. There's an actual hand-to-hand combat. There's war that's happening here. We also know that the reason is in broadly is that throughout the, the, the word of God, every time there's an angelic conflict, it's always because Satan is trying to thwart God's plan. He's trying to do something that will mess it up. On this occasion, it's very obviously directed at Israel because Satan is trying to mess up these end times plan as, uh, as they begin to unfold. And so there's an actual conflict. Verse eight says, but they did not prevail. <clears throat> Talking about the dragon and his angels, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And, and this shows this, that up until this battle and, and really all the way through the midpoint of the tri- tribulation, Satan still has access to heaven. We see that in the book of Job, that Satan shows up in heaven, even though he's a fallen angel, he's still got his card. He can walk into the legal courts of heaven and he's up there making accusations against us, against God's people, always has and, all, and always will up until the midpoint. However, something happens and after this battle, his all access pass to heaven is revoked. Him and all of the angels. And the reason it's important you understand that because it sets us up for verse number nine then. It says, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil uh, and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so we find out here that this angelic warfare uh, resulted in the fact that Satan and all of his angels were cast out. Verse, uh, verse number nine is so descriptive because it wants us to understand the, the, uh, the, the complete difference be, between the evil nature of Satan and the righteousness of God. So it kind of throws all a, a lot of the descriptives that we see sprinkled out everywhere. It just condenses them all and says, yeah, that guy, the guy who, who's been messing this whole thing up, but it goes on and says that he was cast down to earth and his angels were cast out with him. I gave you a little, a little box there. That you, it's a really interesting uh, walk if you want to look at it. There's actually four times in the Bible where Satan fell, falls. The first time is when he falls from his glorified position as Lucifer, one of the premier angels, and he was profaned or he was literally became a fallen angel, and you'll see that in Ezekiel. The second time is when, uh, when we're reading here in Revelations chapter 12, when he falls from having access to heaven and, and his, his access is, re, is revoked. He's thrown down to earth and he's incarcerated on the earth. He can't leave the earth. In other words, his wings are clipped. He can't, he can't fly and, and go to other dimensions. He, he can't do that anymore. He's, he's, he's incarcerated on the earth. The next fall after that, uh, that Revelations 20 talks about is that once Jesus comes down, he will be 
bound in chains and he will be, uh, he will be bound at the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's while the millennium is going on. And then the last one, he's released to run around for a little while, but then this whole thing will wrap up and Satan will be grabbed. And, and after that, he will be uh, tossed into uh, the lake of fire forever and ever. And so, so these are four, four consecutive falls where you can just see he's falling lower and lower and lower, which means he's losing, which means everything he's trying, as desperate as he is, as much as sometimes it looks like he's winning on the earth, ultimately he's losing. And this is going down, down, downhill for him fast. And it's important that we understand uh, this because as we get uh, the next couple of verses, you're going to see that he's, he goes into a blind panic. I mean, he's like a cornered animal. And if you think that he's been vicious up to this point, but he's like a cornered animal and all the stops are coming loose because as we get to close to the end, he, it becomes more obvious to him there's no possible way he's going to win. And he knows that the end is coming and he's trying everything he can to stop it. But this is a particular hit part where when the battle's won, that for the first time ever... <clears throat> Satan is kicked out of heaven, his access is revoked, and what it sounds like is he's incarcerated on the earth, so he's landlocked now. He, he can't even go into the heavens and, and be the spiritual being he once was. He's landlocked now, and he's going to be on the earth. Verse number 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ has come because or for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And so we're not told who this voice was, but it seems to represent redeemed humanity. In Revelations 12, it seems to represent uh, these, these people that were born again through the tribulation, people that were on the earth that have given their life to God. And when they recognize that the, the battle's been won and Satan is diminishing, then they begin to rejoice because they realize is that the kingdom of God, the power of Christ, really is everything God said, and God absolutely is going, is going to rescue. And verse number 11, it says, and they overcame him, that Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to death. Now, I took a little bit of time with this one because this is something that's actually going to happen when we get into that tribulation period, but these are principles that should be happening right now in all of our lives that we should be overcoming Satan's accusations. We should be taking authority over him, not let him have authority over us. And so this, is, this gives us three keys to how we overcome Satan right now, but it's really going to be demonstrated in full, full form uh, for people that are in those tribulation period. But here, here's what it is, that the blood of the lamb overcomes all of Satan's accusations. And so these are accusations, sometimes they're true, because you missed it, you messed up, you did what you said you weren't going to do, what you knew you shouldn't do, and you did it again. And you'll have that, you know, that voice whispering in your head, see, I thought you were a Christian, you promised God you'd never do this again, here you will go again. And then sometimes you have accusations that are pounding you that are not true. For example, I read my Bible, but you didn't get as much out of it as you thought, and you walk away and you hear that, yeah, but if you would have paid attention more, if you really loved Jesus, if you would have got up earlier, if you wouldn't have been so tired, then the Holy Spirit would have come. And so he's the true accuser, but he's also the false accuser. But what we as Christians have to come to grips with is every accusation that comes to him, to us, through him, is absolutely meaningless. 
Romans chapter 8 says there is never going to be any condemnation hurled at us ever again. Because Christ took all of that. Any, anything that we do mess up on, listen, it's family business now. We go to our heavenly father. We go to the Holy Spirit, but the enemy doesn't get to be part of that. It's none of his business anymore. We are sealed in the family of God and we're wrapped up in Jesus. And these people at the end begin to understand that and say, oh, then the blood of the lamb, the price that Jesus paid already secured the victory for me. And even though this is the most intense period that the world has and will ever see, I can still experience an overcoming life through Jesus Christ. And so if we would understand that now, then it would work for us j- just like it was going to. And, and so I even put in there, well, how does it overcome the blood of the lamb? I grew up in a Pentecostal environment and, and sometimes it was, you know, I, in my opinion, looking back, <clears throat> it was as much about demonstration as it was about transformation. And I say that not, de- uh, not disparagingly, we were growing. But I've heard, I've heard some people that, you know, because they understand the concept and they'll get into the problem and they're just like, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood, I plead the blood. And they're just saying it over and over like it's some kind of an abracadabra formula. If you say it right, then eventually it will. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that repeating and declaring is wrong. It, it's not. It, it's a principle uh, in the New Testament. What I'm saying is you have to understand and have faith in what you're declaring. So if you don't believe, if you don't have faith in your heart that the blood of the lamb was more than enough to completely set you free and wall you off from anything that Satan can come against you, then you need to really be leaning into your Bible and meditating in the word of God and asking the Holy Spirit to help you to, to begin to, to, to understand and grow in faith so that you can come at him. Because otherwise, if you just say these words uh, just over and over and over again, that, that's not, that's not going to help anybody. Okay? But if you understand decisively that Jesus' victory was enough and you begin to declare that in your life, nope, we're not going to surrender to sickness. Nope, we're not going to go broke. Nope, we're not going to get a divorce. Nope, we're not. my kids are not going to go away from the Lord because of what Christ promised me. And you begin to bring the word of God to that and you do it with a heart of faith, then all the power of heaven is released and Satan realizes, I got to find something else because this is not going to work. Here's the second one. It says the word of our testimony overcomes his deceptions. The, the word testimony, again, this is not talking about you just sharing your story with somebody. It's not talking about me talking about one event that when I think about it, I still have the feelings and I still have you know, all of the, 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 the warm things that come up in my heart. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But this is talking about that we understand some things about what Christ's word has said to the point that we have pulled it in and Romans 12 says it's renewed or reprogrammed or reshaped our perspective and our convictions on the inside. And we know this to the point that we will stand up and we will give our life for this if necessary because truth is truth. And in fact, it really comes from the same word where we get martyred. And it doesn't mean you have to be killed for your faith, but it means that my testimony is, is, is so rock solid in my conviction that I'm willing to stake my life on it, even to the point that if my life is taken, I won't change what I believe. And, and when you begin to understand that, and this testimony is a result of experientially understanding what Jesus has provided. So you've spent time in the word of God and all of a sudden the word's reshaping you. It's building faith on the inside and, and you begin to realize, you know what? It's just true. I can't explain it, but if God promised it, it's true. 
You got to understand what promises are available to you. Not extensively. You don't have to be theologians. But you have to be able to go and say, here's what I'm walking in right now. What does the Bible say about it? And you've got to grab some of those promises and say, well, God already made declarations. And then you've got to believe how, that God is faithful enough to do what he promised he would do. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You can't just believe that he's God and he can do it. You have to, to stay in that conversation, in that prayer, in that meditating the word until something galvanizes in you and you say, you know what? Not only can he do it, but if he promised it, he will do it. He absolutely will because he doesn't lie. He doesn't tell lies. He's my heavenly father. Here's the last one. Uh, all of this, you got the blood of the lamb, what Christ already did. You got the word of the testimony. I know what he did and I'm now asserting that into my life. But the last one is that we get to the place where we love Christ more than we love our own life. That's a really big one, especially in the last days where 1 Timothy 4 and 2 Timothy 3 says one of the most dangerous things in the last days is people will begin to be lovers of themselves more than lovers of God. Not instead of God, it's just the ratio changes. It's more about me. It's more about what I want. And self-sacrificing and being willing to lay down my life is not popular anymore. It's, no, I want to serve Christ so that he can give me my best life ever. And, and listen, the, the promises of God, God wants you to live to the full. Jesus said that in John 10, 10. I want you to live to the highest potential of who God's created you to be. But when we encounter things that are happening in the world and in the culture and we encounter the attacks of the enemy, we have to recognize I love the Lord. I love his word. I love my relationship with him more than I love everything else. If it costs me everything else, it's not even a decision. And these guys came to the place where they said, you know what, we, we love the Lord even if it costs us their life. And in many cases it will, and they're willing to pay it down. Those are the three ingredients right now. That if we begin to learn to live this right now, it will work for us just like the Bible promises that we can live in the victory that Christ gave to us. And not only that, we can live in the joy and the peace. We can be of good cheer and have confidence. Even if it means that we're, it seems like we're sacrificing, we're losing big things that we were looking forward to, but we're doing it for the cause of Christ, God will pay that back in this life or the next. And we have to get to that where we're literally sold out to Christ. And we're not just serving him because that's the insurance policy that we can live a great life down here. And that, that's really, really important, but it has to do with our consecration to the Lord and our holiness. <clears throat> Let me get to the last verse here and we'll end it. It says, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. Why? For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And so here's what it says that when we get to this last part, it says the heavens are going to rejoice at Satan's eviction <clears throat> and, and, and the wholehearted devotion that, are, that, the Lord, that, that the Lord's saints are demonstrating, but the earth is going to mourn. Uh, the planet and everybody on the planet is going to grieve because again, Satan's been incarcerated on the earth and he's going nuts. He's intensifying his wrath and it says because he knows he has a short time. Again, he's like a corner animal. He's just fighting blindly and ferociously, unleashing all of his power in desperation because he knows that he's beaten and time is running out. In fact, the, the language here is so strong that when it talks about Satan's depravity, it's talking about that he's so depraved, he's so out of his mind that he's literally insane. 
He, there's no strategy left. There, there's, no, there's no planning left. There's no conniving. He's just gone insane. And he is just doing everything he can in one last ditch effort to see if he can pull it off. But he won't be able to. He won't be able to. Um, I, I, I don't know if I left it on your notes or not. But, but if not, uh, l- let me do a recap from the first one. And uh, take me two minutes and, and we're, we'll, we'll be done for the night. But when we look at all that... <clears throat> And we recognize we're living in this in-between. We haven't hit verse number six yet. But as we do, that's what will happen in the tribulation, okay? We, I believe that we'll be raptured before then, if we're ready. But for those people that are not, this is what they have to look forward to. But even then, I want you to know, when we get to the last, to the last, to the last tick of the clock, that there will be people that have given their life to Christ. Some of them, I believe, rededicated their life because they weren't living for Christ and they didn't get taken up, but they'll rededicate their life and they find out that Christ is still powerful, that the word of God, the blood of the lamb is enough to preserve them and give them whatever they need to walk through those last, those last period of, that last period of time, even though quite literally all of hell is being unleashed on the earth. It, it's an indescribably horrible time. But even then, Christ is still enough. How much more? Is Christ's power enough for us today, right now? 100%. This is why Jesus said, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You got everything you need to live a victorious life. Not always a fun life, not always a convenient life, not always a comfortable life, not always an easy life, but a victorious life because our life is consecrated in Christ. Here's the, I wrote it on the first one. I'm gonna say this. We have to understand in the last days more than ever before, number one, we were born in this time for this time. This is not an accident. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life as I'm studying the Bible, you know, I'll kind of sit back and I'll just daydream. What if I was born like in another period where it wasn't so crazy and, you know, I could just kind of enjoy the Lord and this would be one of those times of rest and pause and, and I have to come back to reality and said, if the Lord wanted me born there, I would have been. But Ephesians chapter one says he knew each of us by name before he even laid the foundations of the earth. So that long time ago. And he said, nope, that's the team I want on the field at this particular point in history. And God does that because he'll gift us, he'll grace us, he'll encourage us so that we can be everything that we're supposed to be. In fact, the Bible says that some of the prophets looked forward in time and they said, I wish we were born there. And there's times I'm like, I'll trade you. I'll trade you right now, you know. But God knew who was supposed to be born and born when and we're the team that he wanted on the field. And here's, here's also, I think Christians sometimes lean backwards and they forget that we're not just saved from eternal death, although we are. And we'll, we'll be praising him more and more as we watch this unfold and we go into eternity. But we're, we're saved for a kingdom purpose. That's what we're here for. And by the way, that's what we're going to be judged for, right? When Christians, we'll all stand before the throne of God and be judged, every single one of us. But as Christians, we won't be judged for our sins or our failures or our weakness. Jesus paid for all that. We're gonna go up there and be judged. God's gonna say, okay, man, I'm so glad you accepted Jesus and welcome to heaven. You're my child, I love you. Let's talk about what you did with the gift and the grace and the opportunities and the life and all that stuff that I, that I gave you. What did you do for the kingdom? And I'm telling you, that's going to be a very indicting time for us. No condemnation. Nobody's going to get kicked out of heaven for that. But that's going to be a time where there's going to be a whole lot of Christians who'll be like, what was I thinking? 
I spent so much time and so much money on these things and they're all burnt up. Which, which God doesn't have a problem with things, right? But I didn't spend time on the stuff that I was called to do. And I, that should have been my first priority because they could have came with me and they could have been uh, helpful to bring other people to heaven with me. And so we, we do have to pay attention to that. And we're called for a kingdom purpose and the kingdom purpose is to build his kingdom and to do everything we can to bring in a harvest of souls for eternity. Because listen to me, all the stuff we just read about, that's not a sci-fi movie, that's real. And there's gonna be billions of people that are gonna be suffering and crying out in anguish and, and begging the Lord for second chances. Only when we get to that point in the judgment, there won't be any. And we have the opportunity right now to say, okay, God, help me. Give me courage, give me confidence, help me to be prioritizing my time. Yeah, I got a job and I got a family and, and I need some time to replenish and, and all those things are biblical principles too. But I gotta keep the kingdom as a high priority. I've got to say, by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony, even if I love the Lord to the death, that's the priority. And that, as we go in with that attitude, then the Bible says he preserves us and, uh, <clears throat> and we'll, be, we'll be shining bright and we'll be on the right side of this thing uh, when the eternity wraps up. Hope you've been blessed by God's word tonight. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, see if we come back. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for being so honest with us even when it's kind of hard to hear and hard to read sometimes. But thank you, Jesus, for what you provided, that you bolster us back up in courage. We can read these horrific things and we can walk away and be of good cheer because Jesus has already secured our salvation and he's already given us everything we need so we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to be depressed or discouraged, Lord, but we can be invigorated with your confidence and with your wisdom and we can walk tall and straight right into the destiny you have for us. Help us to do that, Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and, uh, and teach us to do that. And not only that, but as we're learning, help us to bring other people along with us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. You're dismissed. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.